I've titled this message, um, The Applause of the God of Grace. And a couple weeks ago, um, I used the analogy of the Kennedy Honors, where everybody in December gathered and then uh, applauded Billy Crystal and a whole bunch of other entertainers. And we actually had a 30-second um, stand-up and applause time. And um, it was wild because uh, Jack timed me and uh, timed us in this. And 30 seconds seemed like a long time. It was, like, it was pretty cool. We did a standing ovation for God. Okay, it was pretty cool. I think he liked it too. Um, now, we're not going to ask you to do that again. But on the way, um, the other night I was driving home. And um, I'm a classic music guy. I, I really like classical music. I know I'm a nerd, but I really do. And um, I'm listening to classical music. And... Um, and it was so cool because uh, all of a sudden, um, I'm hearing um, the three tenors. Now, anybody here know who the three tenors are? Okay, it was, uh, if you want, I know most of them, but one of them, like Jose Carreras, uh, Placido Domingo, and of course, um, Luciano Pavarotti. When I get to heaven, I'm asking God to give me Pavarotti's voice. <laughs> okay? Um, and what was really fun was they were singing for the very first time was July 7th of 1990, and um, they were in Rome, and it was actually the beginning of the World Cup. It was live, and the very first time they actually sang together. It was pretty amazing. There was a giant audience, World Cup folks and music lovers, two symphonies, and Ruben uh, Mehta, one of the best conductors who's ever done this, was leading them. That was fun. Some of the music had to, had to be uh, redone because they weren't written for three tenors, right? And um, one of the fun things about this, it was a, <laughs> a show-off contest. I mean, they actually knew. They loved each other, but they said, I'm going to show you. No, I'm going to show you, okay? So in the singing, they would actually, one would sing a little while, and then another one would sing, and they were, they were trying to outdo each other. Whoa, and the, uh, and the audience was the recipient of all this wonder, okay? Now, what I had a chance to listen to, and this was what was really fun and struck me. The Lord has such a good sense of humor, because I was trying to figure out how in the world I was going to begin this sermon, since I did it two weeks ago. I was thinking, okay. And you know what I was listening to? It was the last two, um, uh, vers two um, songs that they sang, and they were singing together as a trio. And you could hear them out doing, oh, it was just wonderful. And then I heard it. And then I got the clear title for my new sermon. These two last things were the encore. So it was all this applause, and we're talking like 100,000 people standing up and going absolutely bananas over them. And it was the encore to the applause. And so my title for my new sermon is the applause of the God of grace, the encore. Anyway, that, that was a long introduction, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and we're going to get there. All right. Our aim here is to give an encore ovation to the God of our Father, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. We're going to applaud the God of grace who's brought us into his forever family. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Again, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, briefly, 
Um, Ephesians is declaring the glory of Christ's church. God's one new humanity created in Christ Jesus. God's about something, and the church has a strategic role in it. Paul is going to set forth the implications of the cosmic rule of Christ. That's Ephesians. If you wanted just two words to summarize the whole entire book of Ephesians, in Christ. That's it. Now, we're not done. We're just starting, but we're going to unpack this. But the implications of the cosmic rule of Christ, I'm going to talk about that a whole lot more. But I want to summarize this. Verses 1 to 2. Well, I'm going to read them and just get us oriented here because we're going to take a brief look at Paul's mail. He's writing this to an individual church, but also with implications to all the churches that have been impacted in Asia Minor by his ministry. They're expected to read this too. Paul, a chosen messenger, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. God chose him. He didn't choose God for this. This underscores the official nature of this correspondence. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later, this is addressed to you. This is FedExed. You have to sign for this. This is important stuff. To God's holy people, to the saints. I mentioned this last week. The saint word here is hagioi. It means holy ones. You're set apart to God. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were set apart to God for his special possession. And that changes everything. But we belong to him. In Ephesus, specific, oh, by the way, by extension 2,000 years later to Amelia. And put your own email address in here. It's addressed to you too, directly. And by the way, he knows what your email address is. By the way, that's a fun little side run. I can't help myself. All right. You made me this way. All right, all right. Sorry. Nathan's going back up. Okay, all right. All right. Um, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 3 to 14, I made this point two weeks ago, is one long sentence. One long sentence. Now, if you were to put your finger here in Ephesians and turn right to Colossians, Philippians, actually, the other way around, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and then the Thessalonian letters, what you would notice is each one starts with what happens in verse 15, a thanksgiving. I thank God for you. I pray for you. Ephesians is very unique because beginning in verse 3 all the way to verse 14, he starts this big, long doxology because he's been really thinking long and hard about the implications of this Messiah that he used to think was a fraud because he got crucified that somehow in his encounter with him, he learned that he is the Lord of glory. And he's uh, wrestling with all the implications of the fact that he who died and rose again, ascended to the right hand of God, and now is ruling the entire cosmos. Did you know that? Paul is going, hey, I'm wrestling with all this. And what is this whole thing about this new thing God's doing? We'll get there. 
He begins to praise God. Notice verse 3 controls all of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We talked about that. We unpacked it. Notice the song we sang today when we worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's Psalm 103. To bless the Lord is actually a normal Hebrew way of doxology to God. And so what Paul's doing, he's using Greek terms with Hebrew ideas right behind it. God is worthy to be praised. He is blessed worthy. Why? Because he's made us blessed wealthy. He's loaded us with stuff. Now in chapter 1 verses 4 to 14, I'm not going to review all of it. I want to give you a quick summary. He says, I'm going to unpack these spiritual blessings. They're, spirit, they're blessings, gifts that God has given us by the Spirit that only God can give. Verses 4 through 6, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. What motivated Him? In love, He predestined us for adoption. How? Through His Son. The first thing that he unpacks for us, this wonderful spiritual blessing, is that you and I have been chosen by God to become a part of his forever family. Praise God. Kurt Thompson, one of my favorite writers, writes in, again, uh, this wonderful, uh, important book about the anatomy of the soul. He makes the point that we all come into the world, now listen to me very carefully. This is true of every one of you. Everyone listening to me. We all come into the world looking for someone looking for us. Did you know that? We come into the world looking for someone looking for us. And when we don't get that, we spend the rest of our world, rest of our lives, trying to find some connection that will meet the deepest urge and needs of our heart. Did you know that? You're wired that way. How many of you have ever had this uh, experience where you just sang Amazing Grace in here and then went out there in the parking lot and someone got in your, in your way too fast and you got ticked off? Anybody ever have? Has ever? No. Okay, you're all perfect angels in here, okay? <laughs> yeah, okay. Here's my point. Listen to me. There is an important reality that you and I need to face. When we become a follower of Jesus, We've switched sides in a cosmic conflict. I'm going to talk about that more. But you realize that most of what you and I do is automatic response. We're on automatic pilot. Did you know that? Most of what you and I do in reactions, responses, urges, how we respond to those urges, what we respond to someone when they get on the back of our car, honk, 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 all of that is pre-programmed based on our heritage, the environment we were brought, in, brought, brought into, um, our own culture's programming. We have a pre-programmed template in our brain, and most of what we do is affected by that. You know what God wants to do? He wants to change our automatic pilot. But it starts with this reality of understanding that Hold it. He's chosen me 
before the foundations of the world to be holy, set apart to him, blameless, so there's nothing between us. And in love, he chose me to be a part of his family. And you know what we've got to do as a family? This is, listen to me. This is so fun. It's only been 10 years for me to actually learn this. The last 10, and I'm an old guy. God needs us in his family as a community to learn how to reprogram. Did you know that? And it's only through relationships and the transformation of God that we actually begin to reflect the true identity of who we are now in Jesus. It's amazing because uh, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, Paul is going to really underscore our identity in Christ. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to go, so what? Now, this is what it looks like. Now, I'm just going to give you one specific instance. In chapter 4, he says, oh, by the way, you who have been stealing, you who are stealing, it's actually present tense, you who are stealing, stop, and now go work with your hands. Why? That you might be able to give somebody else. Do you see how all of a sudden this reprogramming affects your body? So your mind, your desires, your body, every single thing it means to be human is now being changed. Isn't that wild? So think about this. Oh, i got to stop stealing. I'm now a part of the family of God. Oh, God says don't steal. Oh, okay. Uh, now I want you to heal the selfishness in you that wants to take Somehow there's programming in you who says, I need to take something. But over time in this community, you learned that you didn't learn Christ that way. Paul makes that point in Ephesians 4. Instead, he's changing you to become like God's son, Jesus Christ, who is self-giving, loving. He goes to the cross for us, and somehow this, this, this becomes this over time. What happened? Somehow the body... This hand that can steal, oh, I see that really nice uh, computer there, Oop. eBay, all of a sudden goes, oh, that guy needs a new computer. Hey, boss, overtime, cool, here's a gift, take a computer. Somehow, that interaction of becoming a part of the family of God changes over time the internal orientation. So the use of my finger that would have been doing this now becomes work, 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 bump, bump, help. Am I making sense here, y'all? I mean, this is amazing. Now, here's what's crazy. You can actually trust in Jesus today and become a part of the kingdom of God. But if you bail out of this community and go back out there in that culture all by yourself and you think, hey, I'm a lone ranger, great. Wolves love lost sheep. Mmm, they taste great. But the community, the family of God, says, hold it, we need each other for this transformation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. He chose us. He adopted us. And through his son, he redeemed us. Now, I use the illustration of adoption. Paul's not talking about orphan Annie here. He's talking about Ben-Hur. Adoption in the ancient world, where 
Julius Caesar adopted his nephew, Augustus Caesar, one of the most well-known adoptions in the ancient world. Why? To take his name, to take his legacy, and to honor him and respect him, and then carry out his own wishes. But understand something. Slaves cannot be adopted in the ancient world. We're pictured as this slave of the evil one, and our sin is what got us into slavery in the first place, and our lifestyle illustrates it. And by the way, if you want to read something interesting, read Ephesians 2, 1 to about verse 4 to, under, to remind us of what we were like, that you and I were all slaves to the enemy who runs the universe, I mean, I should, not universe, world, thank you, Lord, uh, world system. It's his thinking, it's his value system, it's his way of living, his way of responding that's actually part of the programming and you're in my head. He goes, I know, the, the evil one knows what songs you and I like to whistle to. And he'll play the chords. Every one of them. And so he's going to do, and what we have to do is this whole programming, reprogramming thing. But Christ bought us out of the slavery. We had to be redeemed before we could be adopted. I made that point two weeks ago. The price tag for our redemption was way higher than you can imagine, way higher than you can pay. It was the price of his own son's blood. Now, I heard a sermon, um, and I can't remember who, but I'm going to steal his thunder anyway. If you think about a love that says, look, I want you in my family so much that I'll do anything to get you in my family. Have you ever been loved like that? You and I come into the world looking for someone looking for us. Guess what? You have one. You have a father that says, I want you in my family. I'm going to do anything it takes to get you in my family. Even if it's the price of my own son's blood, my son's going to say, sign me up. I'm in, Father. Let's get this done. It, that's grace. We sang about amazing grace. Do you realize how amazing it is? Because it includes you and me. But we're not done. I want to focus on two things here. Notice verse 3. It says, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Do you see that expression? And then let's go down to verse um, 9 and 10. Because Paul is making it clear that God has made known to him and the apostles, and then through them to us, this amazing mystery of God's plan. Mystery is not uh, superstitious. It's simply God had not chosen to reveal it until Jesus stepped on the stage of human history. Jesus revealed it. His apostles are proclaiming it. And what's the mystery? You'll see it explained even more detail in chapter 3, that God is bringing the entire universe together under one head, Jesus Christ. Jew, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Messiah, Jesus would be the promised fulfillment, of course, of that. Jew and non-Jew, Gentile world, everybody else. I'm bringing them all together. I'm bringing the whole universe together under one head, Jesus Christ. 
It's a cosmic plan. Notice what verse um, 10 says. He purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Note that. Times reach their fulfillment. History has a plan that God has established. He's working the plan. You and I are a part of the plan. The church is a part of the plan. And that's the mystery part. God did not disclose in the Old Testament this idea that Jesus then brings. Some of you have heard of this. Um, in fact, if you notice uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 20, uh, let's see, verse 21, it, it says that God has raised Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but what? You see it there? In the age to come. Two ages. Two ages. That's a very common theme in the New Testament. That's a normal Jewish way of viewing things. The present age, evil age. You'll see this referred to in Ephesians 5. Um, because of the days are evil. The evil age is up and running right now. The evil age is characterized by certain things. That would be sin. Europe and compulsion in you and me to rebel as human. Our first parents were rebels. And so are you and I. But you know what? This evil one who runs the universe, the uh, Thank you for the clarification. Uh, the earth, every time I say it, he stops me. Okay, the world, he is the one uh, fueling and enslaving and using those things to destroy us. But we're complicitous in it. We're not doing this against our will, we're complicitous in it. But here's my point. God says, I've not let you go. I'm redeeming you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to redeem this. But right now in the present evil age, death, sin, rebellion, despair. Anybody here ever been depressed? You don't have to raise your hand because I know we all have. That's a part of this brokenness. Anybody ever gotten sick? Yes, that's a part of the brokenness. Any divorces, any hurts, any losses, that's a part of the brokenness. It's still continuing, isn't it? This is the part of the present evil age, and all the Jewish thought was, well, when God takes care of everything, the age to come will show up. It will come in a moment in history. It'll be all done. The evil one will be vanquished. Israel will be restored in Jerusalem. The Messiah of Israel will sit on the throne and God's reign will come to earth and take over. That was Jewish expectation. And one of the great signs of the new age, the presence of the Spirit. Now here's what happens. This is amazing. Jesus shows up and goes, you know what? I tell you what. I have good news for you. Good news, kingdom of God is coming. The reign of God is coming. I would be the king. If you believe in me, if you trust in me, you get a couple things. One, you get forgiveness of sins. Whoa, that's a part of the new age, the second age. Forgiveness of sins. Without that, you have no access to the kingdom. Without that, you have no hope for the new age, the second age. Because you have actually chosen the wrong side, and you're still on that side. 
Remember how Jesus actually looked at uh, religious leaders and say, look, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Whoa, but hold it. I'm a religious leader. Well, guess what? If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. You have no hope for the new age, the second age, which is coming without belief in me. But he says, all right, you get your uh, kingdom citizenship. You get your forgiveness of sins, which allowed you to get into the former. You get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Which is my great gift that I have the uh, authority to give you who believe in me. And you get this new family that I'm creating. But you know what? I'm not done yet. And so I'm going to leave you in the midst of all this to become the family that I've created you to be. Remember something. Now I'm going to try to pitch this really big. What does it mean in heavenly places? Cool. I'm doing just fine. It's God's throne. In the ancient world, there was a worldview that everyone had, even Caesar, even Pontius Pilate, especially Pontius Pilate's wife. Read John. It's called the open universe or open heaven. We have been so influenced by the scientific worldview. And believe, again, I made this for a couple of weeks ago. I love science. But in terms of a worldview, that our universe is a machine made up of molecules and cause-effect systems, and I fit into that a certain way. The ancient world, it was an open universe. If you were Greek, you'd think of the gods, and the gods would be interacting with humans. It'd be an open universe, spirit beings happening everywhere. Um, the Bible makes it clear that the Jewish worldview, the Greek worldview, all accepted that reality. And I love um, the story, some of you are aware of this story, 2 Kings 6.17, one of the greatest illustrations of this, Old Testament. I'm not going to turn there, just brief tell you the story. Elisha the prophet, he was um, the northern kingdom um, king's um, spy, not physically, but he knew because he was a prophet, every time the king of Aramea, or ancient Syria, um, was doing some military maneuver, he knew about it in advance, and he would then tell the king of uh, Israel, um, this is what's happening, don't be here, be out of Dodge, okay, great. And finally, the king of Aramea says, who's our spy over there? And um, his generals go, it's no spy, it's Elisha the prophet. He knows everything you do and everything you say and everything you think. He knows it. Well, we'll take care of that. So they send an army. And they surround um, Elisha's little house, and his, he, his servant comes out one day, and guess what? They're surrounded by uh, troops, and Gehazi is sweating bullets. He's going, ah! I don't know if he said that, but I, I would have at the time. And here's what Elisha does. Elisha says, chill. You can see that in the Hebrew, by the way. Um, 
and, and, he, and he says, Lord, and by the way, he tells the guys, look, there are more for us than for them. And he has this expression. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And what happens? At that moment, Gehazi sees that, you know what? You know who needs to be sweating bullets? The, the Syrians, that army, because Elisha and Gehazi are surrounded by the army of God. Angelic forces in chariots and fire. So Elisha didn't have one bead of sweat because he knew the invisible reality, the unseen realm that Michael Heiser talks about that is helping to remind us that hold it. We have so bought into the mechanistic universe, even in the way we talk about Christianity, that we've got to wake up to the worldview that the biblical material is actually proclaiming, that everybody in the ancient world understood. Do you realize that God is not some abstract deity away somewhere so far in the heavens that he's not close to you? No, in fact, he's this close. If you were to see it, his throne would be right here around us. His angels would be proclaiming his glory day and night right around us. And when you pray, that's how close he is. And when he promises his blessings and he gives them to you, that means that nothing in the universe can keep them from happening. Do you realize that? It's the throne of God, this unseen realm, this open universe. Now, why is this strategic? Because as Paul is going to make it clear, there are unseen forces that are for God. Read Psalm 103, by the way, the very end of it. Bless the Lord, all you his angels. All you his um, hosts. That's his army, heavenly army. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wow. He... Even David was very aware of this reality. He camped on it. He counted on it. But Paul also is very aware that there are a whole lot of forces in this cosmos that are his enemy, God's enemy, who actually influence, as I said, the world system of thought, entertainment system, conceptual system, economic systems, political systems are all influenced by the evil one. Again, read Ephesians 2. I love 1 John. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world, because where do they come from? He says, um, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, there's one more that I can't forget. Somebody help me. Um, one more. What's that? No, that's not first. No, that's not first John. But thank you. That's a great one. Um, but here's my point: they come from somewhere. Every thought in your and my head comes from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Those are the three I wanted: world, flesh, devil. And so you and I are influenced by this, and this cosmos is infected by this destructive force, and it wants to destroy you personally. It wants to destroy your family. It wants to destroy this community of faith right here. It wants to destroy the community of faith at large, and it's very actively doing that, attempting to do it. Realize something. The moment you trusted Christ, yes, you got, I'm no longer going to hell. 
Yay. Hold it. That's step uno. You've now been brought into the family of the living God for eternity, and you have just switched sides in a cosmic war. Oops. We were talking about birthmarks earlier, and we were talking about that. I'm sorry. There's a mark. I'm sorry. Anyway. um, I once saw a cartoon. There were two um, large uh, deer talking to each other. Big antlers, you know, the whole thing. They were talking, like they're standing up, talking, have a conversation. And uh, this one deer um, had this um, bullseye on his side. And the other deer was looking at him and says, bummer of a birthmark. (laughs) Do you realize the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you got a target on your back? Do you realize that neighbor, that person sitting next to you, if they're a follower of Jesus, they got one too? Do you realize that's one of the reasons why we need each other so desperately? I'm going to read something here. I don't do this very often, but I want to read something. Remember in chapter, uh, I'm I'm still talking about God's plan to uh, bring the entire universe under one head, Jesus Christ. Timothy Gombus who taught at Cedarville, and he now teaches at a seminary that I used to teach in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He wrote a book titled Ephesians, Participating in the Triumph of God in Christ. I'm going to quote from him here. Listen to me carefully. There are two ages up and running. I just made that point. The new age, begun in Christ by the power of the Spirit, and the old age or the present evil age, which is still ruled by the fallen powers. This is why our current existence as followers of Jesus is filled with tension. The moment you became a Christian, do you realize you signed up for the most difficult thing you're ever going to do? Did you know that? Being a Christian is hard. It is really hard especially when you read the fine print. And especially when you start beginning to look at what you're really like under the hood. He continues. Ephesians, therefore, and listen to me, I'm going to continue with uh, Timothy here. Ephesians, therefore, is a polemic. That means it's an attack in which Paul asserts the triumph of God in Christ over the powers that rule the present evil age, and he explains, Paul does, the manner in which the people of God are to inhabit this victorious drama. Letting it, that is the church, orient and shape this drama is to orient and shape their lives together as a community. The story of the risen Christ who's seated at the right hand of God, who's going to be the agent to bring all the entire cosmos together, that story is supposed to run you and me. That new story is a new script that's supposed to run through our head. It's a new story that's supposed to shape our old story and reshape it until we become more and more reflections of it. Continued. When we do this, when the people of God play their roles faithfully, As the spirit-empowered body of Christ on earth, we participate in and perform God's polemic. 
Now, these words are very important, so listen to me, because I'm going to conclude this with why in the world this church even exists and why it even matters. Through his people, God is asserting and defending his own sovereign victory over the forces that are seeking to destroy his good creation and to thwart his purposes of redeeming those aspects of creation that are broken, enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. We have switched sides in a cosmic conflict. These are my words now. We've chosen the victorious side, you know. We know what's going to happen when the gun blows. We've already flipped the book to the end, and we see how it ends. The death of Christ has paid our redemption price. The Father has adopted us into, uh, into his family through his eternal Son. The resurrection and ascension of Christ has placed Jesus at the right hand of God and made him Lord over all beings and all things in the cosmos. Yet the conflict continues. The church is God's forever family, created in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's the first expression of, God's, of Christ's cosmic rule. I'm going to read this again. The church not simply this building, but these people gathered here to honor Jesus is the first expression of Christ's cosmic rule. As Paul will say in Ephesians 3.10, the church puts God's wisdom on full display to whom? To the invisible cosmic forces that you and I cannot see that are around us everywhere. What's at display? Let me tell you. To those who are for God, he's going, wow, what a genius plan. But for those who were God's enemies, do you realize that Good Friday, they thought, wow, we're done. Whoa, we win. It's ours. We get to keep it. Three days later, when Christ arose, they went, oy vey. We're doomed. But they've resisted the outcome ever since. The church is called to live out the implications of being God's family. That's ruled by Jesus, the Messiah, by the power of the Spirit. Remember the plan. Everything in heaven and earth under one head, Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully, church. The unity of the triune God, the very first family, was eternal. Did you know that? God was not a bachelor. He was a family. The end game. Go to Revelation, the end of Revelation. God restores family. The human family gets restored to the eternal family. That's the end game. That's the whole story. Wonderful, isn't it? Hasn't happened yet. The unity of the triune God, the first eternal family, is, listen to me, is to be put on display now in the midst of the present evil age. I'm going to read that again. Please listen. Turn up your hearing aid. The unity of the triune God, the first eternal family, is to be put on display now in the midst of the present evil age through the church, which is his body, the fullness of which is to fill everything in every way. By the way, that's temple language. Filling, let me explain filling quickly. Filling means presence. When you eat too much, you feel it. It has influence on you. 
You drink too much. You feel it. It has influence on you. When you're filled with love, you buy flowers. You can't help it. You're filled. It overflows. When Christ fills the church, Christ is revealed by the church. Are you hearing me? When his presence, his rule that's going to include the entire cosmos is first displayed in a group of human beings who are as screwed up as you and me, wow, the enemy forces are going, man, we are in deep stuff. But the great forces are going, God, we are blown away by your amazing plan. Our vision is simply to embrace the calling of this adventure to become the family of God in Christ in reality and to engage in his mission to rescue everyone we can from the evil forces of this present age that enslave, deceive, destroy, and that are destined for the wrath of God. And everyone's linked to them is destined to that same wrath. Do you know that? Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath, destined for wrath because we were complicitous with the enemy. We've switched sides. Getting out of hell is great, but it's only the beginning. If you look at the website, I'm wrapping up. When you look at our website for our church, Pierce Point Community Church, I looked at this website a couple years ago. I was looking for a church. I read it. Cool, interesting. I saw this crazy mugshot. I went, well, I don't know about that. Um, and what was neat about the church is it had five um, doctrinal statements. Five. Huh, I thought that's kind of short. That was me then. We believe in the scriptures, the word of God. We believe in God as Trinity. We believe you're saved by faith, by grace through faith. I'm trying to remember the other ones. But regardless, they're on the website. Now what's wild is I, I, I showed up. And I, I read this, by the way, and I came here. And here's what the website says. We are a community, listen to me, please. We are a community of Christ followers on a journey of discovering what it means to be a family. Last week, if you weren't here, um, my brother Nathan um, announced his resignation as our pastor. This vision that was birthed in his mind and heart that his wife and family shared 14 years ago. If my reading of Ephesians 1 is anywhere close to being true, then the vision of this church is God's very vision. Are you hearing me? Now, I talked about the business model, the machine model. Do you realize that most churches would say the moment a senior pastor resigns, he's, he and his family need to move? That's normal protocol. I've been at this for a long time. That's normal protocol. But hold it. That's the way a machine would work. That's the way a company would work. That's the way business models work. But how does a family work? And I told, I looked right my brother in the eye. I said, you realize, hold it. If this is a family model, you don't look at the patriarch of the family who's wounded, bruised, hurt, by the way, by the Sheep in the family, they have sharp teeth. I've been there, okay. You don't look at the patriarch of the family and go, oh, by the way, you're hurting, you're wounded, you're bleeding. Get out of Dodge. Pack your bags, move. No one's a family do. Hey, you need rest. You need healing. We're going to be here for you as a family. We're a part of this together. I, 
Amen? Now, I've got to tell you one other thing. I went to an amazing seminary, and I learned a lot of fun stuff. But I have to tell you, 15 years ago, I could not be in this church. I'm just going to straight up. I could not. My theological system, I still hold this stuff. This is what's really funny. I still believe all these same things. I have good reasons to believe them. Now, if I were to ask a question, how many of you believe in the rapture? Don't raise your hand, okay? Uh, How many of you don't? That would be interesting. But if I ask you this question, by the way, a little funny note, since I'm almost there. Anyway, um, I was in a megachurch in Dallas, Texas for eight years as as a single pastor, singles pastor. I had 600 single adults under my ministry. And one of my small, uh, my um, uh, committees, um, we were looking for a leader. And our church was so committed to the pre-tribulation rapture that because this gentleman did not hold to that, he could not actually be in leadership. Understand something. That used to be where I was. Now, here's what's really funny. If I were to ask this question, how many of you believe that Christ is coming back? You know what? We can go to war together. So we are part of the family and here's my point to this culture. Now, there's a wonderful movie series, I mean, TV series right now called The Chosen. Okay, that's wonderful. I don't watch it. That's great. I don't have time. But anyway, here's my point. As good as that is, and I hope God uses it around the world to bring people to Christ. Do you realize that's not God's planned media program? Did you know that? Because I can show that even to my neighbors and then still run over their dog and not care. What God's plan to show the enemy invisible, invisible forces and to show this culture that you and I are a part of, what no human can produce, only God can produce it, only Christ can display it, is when his family begins to look more and more like his son in terms of behaving to please the Father, to love one another, to deal with all this stuff, oh, okay, when I get out of singing Amazing Grace after church, I'm going to be really nicer out here because, you know what, Lord, help me to deal with my frustration and my self-centeredness. Help me, Lord. Cool. I'm going to come back next week. And when, um, when Rick comes up to me before at church and challenges me, I'm going to say, I love you, brother, and I forgive you anyway, okay? So we go, uh, my, my point is, a community goes, hey, we're going to probably, the closer we get, the more likely I'm going to hurt you. And you're going to hurt me. We're going to, we're going to, but what's really fun is rather than running, we go, hey, I love you, brother. Would you forgive me? Yes, just please don't step on my foot again. It hurts. Okay, okay. Uh, am I making any sense here? I'm, I'm musing, I know, but let me get to the end of this. We're supposed to applaud the only God in this context that has a plan to fix the universe. We're supposed to applaud him with an encore. But remember, the greatest applause he wants is your and my understanding that we have a role in his cosmic plan and our job is a community is to live to his glory. His plan is cosmic. 
It's all centered in His Son, Jesus Christ. It includes us. My question for you, are you in?